Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore doesn't flinch for enemy fire, loves the smell of napalm in the morning, and would literally kill for good surfing and a beachside barbecue. His attempts to recreate home within the theater of war render him the perfect foil to a certain upriver madman who seems intent on making high culture serve the purposes of primitive horror. And yet Kurtz is ready to argue that it is his methods that are more sound, just because they embrace their ruthlessness more honestly, in contrast to the impotent half-measures of an imperial power that can rationalize its atrocities as collateral damage in the service of a larger humanitarian goal. Which approach should evoke more horror? Today we're discussing Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 film, Apocalypse Now. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olanik. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself. So Aaron, at the very end of this film, I had the voice of Walter Weatherman in my head. I know it's weird that my conscience <laughs> has adopted the voice of an Arrested Development character. In that <laughs> we make a reference to this every other episode. That's true. And the moral of the story was, uh, and that's why you shouldn't read so much poetry. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of... Uh, Marlon Brando, he's reading T.S. Eliot, right? Yep. And then according to the Dennis Hopper character, who's the, the photojournalist, and Conrad's the Heart of Darkness is the uh, Harlequin. He's, you know, recites Rudyard Kipling's If as part of his like rambling speech, and we get the sense that he's referring back to Marlon Brando's Kurtz reciting that poem as well. And this seems to be one of the things that is entrancing to people in the same way that this worked in Heart of Darkness, right? So Kurtz was a an artist, he was a journalist, he was a musician, he was a person who took the supposed humanitarian mission in the Congo seriously. And we get some of that idea here with Kurtz's reading poetry and composing manuscripts and recording himself pontificating on on the war into his tape recorder and of course we we also get the parallel in this movie of a you know supposed humanitarian component to the war i think the two you know the two things line up very well mm. and that's that helps make this a very faithful retelling i think of of the story even though it's you know there's so many divergences so of course the war is you know whereas in the heart of darkness this has supposedly something to do with civilizing the natives in this case it's about stopping communism and it's about protecting south vietnam from north vietnam it's not as direct an idea related to higher culture or something like that or the the imposition of certain cultural values and so that makes the you know in the movie it makes it feel a little bit disconnected right why is kurtz reading poetry is it did brando just come with poetry and want to read it (laughs) (laughs) um obviously you know we know if people who've watched hearts of darkness which is a great documentary about the making of the film and the craziness of it and and the fact that brando hadn't read the book heart of darkness and didn't learn any of his lines and didn't want to do the lines and 
wasted lots and lots of time arguing with Coppola over the dialogue because he didn't understand it while time was ticking on his, I think he was going to be shooting for two weeks. I forget, but for a million dollars. Yeah. To what extent is this just kind of a tacked on attempt to make things surreal? And to what extent does it actually fit with the story? I think it fits in the end. So that was the <laughs> what I was left with at the very end of the film. Something about poetry and something going back to this idea, this very kind of platonic contempt for poetry and the idea that it can unleash raw, dangerous emotions on the world, on civilization, impulses that, you know, in a way, poetry, right, it's been, is meant to represent what is highest in civilization. And yet we get this, this paradoxical idea that this is actually dangerous to civilization. And we wrestled with this idea as well in our Heart of Darkness episode, which is, you know, whether the horror, Kurtz's horror, is a matter of the primitive kind of breaking through the thin veneer of civilization or whether it comes from civilization and how those two things are related. Well, I guess I didn't question whether or not Brando's character sort of fits in at the end, though I suppose I should have. I guess nothing Brando does surprises me. So, <laughs> I also liked the the different... Re- I had a very different reading on Kurtz in this adaptation. Not very different, but uh, first of all, I like the fact that his, some of his humanitarian efforts in Heart of Darkness are transposed in Apocalypse Now into that sort of quixotic (laughs) joining of the special forces at 38. I really liked that detail because that's the kind of thing that speaks to heroism in Vietnam. You know, it's not just a guy with big ideas who goes in and wants to rise through the ranks. This is a guy who wants to start from the bottom and work really hard and doesn't care about rising through the ranks so much as serving one's country, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, or where whatever the special forces entails, doing the hard work. The, the real hard job that takes a tremendous amount of intelligence and skill, but is extremely dangerous and messy and puts you on the line in a way that, you know, so I, I liked that here. I don't think that we got that from the, the Kurtz in Heart of Darkness. I think this is a translation into like what Vietnam era people would admire in someone. Uh, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't know enough about Vietnam really to be talking with any authority about it. So people are going to have to take everything I say with a grain of salt. The other thing that occurs to me in what you said, I, I don't see poetry as being an outgrowth of Kurtz's ideals, or rather I don't see uh, poetry in the way that Kurtz behaves being connected Rather, I see those two things in tension. I think, you know, last time we talked about the two dominant senses that Conrad calls upon in the novel to describe both the jungle and Kurtz, which is like sight and sound, right? The silence of the jungle, which is sort of terrifying, and Kurtz's voice. And then also the visuals of the jungle and of Kurtz, of Marla wanting to see Kurtz, um, that desire to see him and to hear him, those two things were kind of twinned. And I guess sound struck me as the dominant metaphor within the novel, obviously the most fitting one based on the genre. And so it seems only right that in a film it would be sight that's kind of the dominant metaphor. So I suppose what I saw was Coppola kind of playing with that a little bit and showing the ineffectiveness of rhetoric, but also the tension between what Kurtz says he is and his highfalutin Um, you know, poetry recitations and the visual reality of what's actually happening in that Anger Watt style compound, those two things as being absurdly in tension rather than one being the result of poetry, which I think is what you're getting at. So even with the the title of the the film, Apocalypse Now. The first screenwriter on this was John Melius. And an early title was The Psychedelic Soldier. 
and then eventually it ended up being Apocalypse Now as a variation on Nirvana Now, which was a slogan apparently going around in the hippie scene in California, which associated drug culture and getting high with reaching enlightenment, an enlightened state of consciousness. There's the famous scene in which we actually see it's graffitied at the final and final scene on the temple or on the rocks are our motto apocalypse now so nirvana is transposed into apocalypse and so that's one idea here about the sense in which good intentions can go wrong Mm. we see clearly that clearly in conrad's novel as well there's the hypocrisy element right so it's you, you we're here to civilize the natives but really they're there to exploit but in the figure of kurtz the hypocrisy actually vanishes and that might be the problem. So, so he's a true believer. He's, he's the one who actually has all the artistic talents and genuinely, initially at least, believes in this project of civilizing people, of being a humanitarian. And then the question is why that goes wrong and, and whether, again, that's just a breaking through, you know, whether he's, he goes native or he somehow loses all sense of inhibition, is sort of touched by nature and a lack of civilizational checks so that instincts simply emerge, or whether those types of cruelties he's engaged in are actually a product of civilization. So that's one fundamental question. On the idea that they're the product of civilization, that's the sort of the Rousseauian point of view. So then we get to the point where we ask the same question with respect to the arts, whether there's a darker side to it. Sure. So Coppola, he famously said, this movie isn't just about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. (laughs) Right. And he describes this whole process of making the movie and being in the jungle and going crazy. And in in Hearts of Darkness, he kvetches a lot about this movie is going to be terrible and this is so pretentious. And he sounds pretentious even when he's describing his own pretentiousness. I really didn't know that Coppola had this character. I'm surprised by that because he, he seems very down to earth in the interviews that I've seen. Maybe they're later, you know, as an older man. <laughs> well, he seems almost a, a bit manic. So we don't have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how this is related to the arts. But it's suggestive for me in the sense that there is something right, right. You know, you're supposed to poetry is supposed to be inspired. It's supposed to be quasi insane. And I'm treating poetry here as a representative of, of higher culture and the higher part of civilization. Taken too far, it can become unmoored from reality. It can be a manifestation of psychosis so there's inspired madness versus madness and i'm lining that up with the darker manifestations of civilization or a supposed humanitarian component to colonization or war yeah so that tension i think it's certainly there in the book but i i suppose what i'm trying to get at is it's not so apparent right it's not so in your face and i think that what you're describing as the function of poetry for me as i was watching this was the the function of filmmaking right I think any good movie, just like any good poem, is kind of a commentary on Mm -hmm. making a movie as it is. I I suppose I should preface anything I say with this disclaimer, which I mentioned last time. I've seen large chunks of this movie before, not all of it as as I learned, Um, (laughs) not the most horrifying sections. I thought I had seen basically all of it. And what I had seen, I didn't remember very well, but I knew what I was in for, and actually I really didn't want to watch this movie because I knew what I was in for. So I should just say that I watched the movie twice in preparation for this, but I deliberately didn't look up any secondary information. I decided not to watch 
Hearts of Darkness until after we record. And the only thing I knew about this movie was that quote that you gave of Coppola's about this movie isn't about Vietnam, it is Vietnam. Um, that was the only thing I knew going mm. into it. So I've used that as a cipher to interpret everything about this movie, mm -hmm. because that was the one scrap of evidence that I had to go on. So I guess what I'll say, just to preface also, is that this movie I found unbelievably disturbing and mm. did not enjoy at all. And I think partially because we're coming out of the pandemic. So during the last year, admittedly, my movie consumption has been escapist. You know, it's been cotton candy. I really haven't been able to handle much else. So maybe my tolerance has decreased, I'm afraid. Also, I'm not a big fan. As you know, Wes, I have an aversion to any kind of explicit mm -hmm. sex or violence on screen. Not to say that I'm against freedom of artistic expression in any way. And I'm, of course, fine when it when it serves the plot or when it's artistic, whatever. But even then, I have a distaste for it, I must admit. So I'm hypersensitive to what people get exposed to visually for a lot of reasons, partially because I'm a teacher of young men. Mm -hmm. And I also believe really strongly in an ethics of visual consumption. So I guess what this movie made me confront is the, the sort of meta difference between the novel as a form and the film as a form. And the boundaries that I almost felt were violated by seeing certain elements from the book, which were horrifying, like the heads on the spikes around the, the Kurtz compound, actually seeing those visually translated into Apocalypse Now. So I suppose that's, that's where I'm, I'm coming from. And so th therefore the tension in what Kurtz was reading aloud, the poetry, and what the photojournalist character was reciting aloud seemed very heightened to me so that this seemed to me to be not the outgrowth of poetry as what was happening on the compound as, as an expression of madness, but rather the tension between the higher ideals of poetry and what was happening on the compound as expressed through the visual medium and therefore the hypocrisy was inherent within the film itself rather than the tension between poetry and violence, if that makes any sense. It made me think, why make this movie? Like, why do this? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a worthwhile question. And I, I know it's a stupid question on a certain level. The movie is a masterpiece. I'm glad that it was made. But at the same time, it made me confront the idea of if this isn't a movie about a war, but if this is Vietnam and it's meant to reproduce a certain experience, and it's also an anti-war movie, those two things seem to me to be intention. So we're using art, filmmaking art, as a way to express a kind of madness and using a kind of madness to get there. Like you're using the film which is a sort of a f form of exploitation in a way to demonstrate or depict exploitation. It seemed to me to be a double bind at a certain point. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, I know this is not a book that you're particularly a fan of, but uh, Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. Sure. That book is a reflection on how you would talk about war without actually glorifying it, if that's even possible. Mm -hmm. And it's related to how you, whether you can talk about trauma per se. And the glorification is something that kind of, you know, you, you take something that is inherently traumatic and it becomes tolerable as glorification. So, yes, then this was an, a debate at the time. You know, pe some people saw this as a glorification of the war. Some people saw it as a critique of the war. And, of course, Coppola saw it as a critique. And so did Melius. You know, the, the whole point of the screenplay was to point to the absurdity of the war and the surrealism of the war, mm -hmm. which I think the movie does a very good job of. 
So we get the Sampan massacre. You know, the, the movie's op- episodic. Yeah. Even though it's based on Heart of Darkness, it evokes the Odyssey in some ways. And in fact, Coppola called it the Idiodyssey. <laughs> He's very self-critical through the whole making of the film and talking about how terrible it was going to be. And and Melius was directly influenced by the Odyssey. So he thought of, for instance, Kilgore as the Cyclops. Mm. And in the theatrical release, there's a scene where the Cyclops has to be tricked. Um, And there's a scene where Willard steals Kilgore's surfboard and takes off Mm -hmm. and then is chased by Kilgore. Sorry, that's not, I I mean, in the Redux release, it's not in the theatrical release. And as they go upriver, things get more and more surreal or psychotic. So this is a really interesting critique of the war because it tries to get at the craziness of it. Instead Mm -hmm. of saying this is just cruel or it's cynically exploitative or it's hypocritical, it's not really about communism or any legitimate threat. It's about American imperialism or it simply is too costly in terms of American lives. Those critiques in a way are put to the side in favor of this critique of its surreality Hmm. and that Melius' original title for the screenplay, The Psychedelic Soldier, that's one of the things he really wanted to get at, which is not, well, I don't know if it was original at the time. Of course, I think it became kind of a trope in Vietnam movies, but the, the emphasis on the use of drugs in Vietnam and the transplantation of youth culture and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So I think Willard at one point calls his crew rock and rollers with one foot in the grave, something like mm-hmm. that. And we get introduced to them, you know, the clean puts, he's listening to the radio and then the Rolling Stones come on and there's, and there's dancing. And of course the surfer is water skiing behind the boat and all that stuff. I think the most brilliant part of the, the film comes very early with Kilgore and it's one of the longest segments in the film most of these episodes last like five to 12 minutes Hmm. but kilgore we get almost a half hour of kilgore and it's brilliant because the absurdity is really highlighted this idea that kilgore is entirely motivated by the desire to have fun right you know his cavalry is very competent they adore him according to willard and and obey him and they can execute these attacks which are very effective but for kilgore it's all subjugated to the idea that he can kind of recreate home in the war theater right so he can surf and and his only motivation for helping take the village that willard needs because that's going to be his his launching point for his boat is to so that he can surf and this is where i think the question of glorification is really highlighted because Kilgore is sort of like an ancient Greek hero. And we can revisit that, right? Because the the first forms of poetry are glorifications of war. Or maybe they aren't. You know, is the Iliad Iliad a glorification of war? That's also a discussion. But but yeah, Kilgore is this larger-than-life manly man who doesn't flinch when bombs go off around him. Everyone ducks, but not him. You know, and he just ignores everything dangerous. And so you, at least for me, and I'm sure for a lot of men, at least, it's hard not to find that attractive in a way. So yes, in highlighting the absurdity of it all, you may be evoking an identification with that position, a vicarious enjoyment of that position. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I'd say again that I I think I had actually the opposite reaction to that, though. I can understand maybe why some of that would be glorification. I mean, certainly the elements of absurdity 
in the film served the same function for me that they did in the book. So the devastation and the feeling of utter futility evoked in the book by things that we talked about last time, you know, the, the broken pipes, the fact that they can't get any rivets, stuff like that. That's what the effect of the absurdity in this film had on me. But I, I would say that, you know, the ride of the Valkyries scene, I actually watched this with a, with a friend the first time and I had to like broke down. I found it so disturbing. <laughs> I didn't find it glorifying at all. So as I said before, the surreality of that scene had the same effect of deadening that in Heart of Darkness, the you know futility of the infrastructure had for me. It seemed to me that Coppola's intention wasn't necessarily glorification. I mean, it seemed to me that the intention was to induce horror mm-hmm. in us, in the viewer. And to make us feel uh, to a certain extent as though we were going through the war, though that's obviously absurd on its face. You know, we're not going through the war by watching a movie. But because of the reasons I mentioned before, maybe I'm, I'm set up to, to view the, the film this way, you know, the pandemic, my natural skittishness, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I, I found certain elements of that attempt at horror to be, I, I don't want to use this word and I don't want to say anything I'm going to regret later because I just feel strongly about this right now, but edging on immoral. Perhaps. But not because it could be glorified, inadvertently glorifying. No. Okay. No. In fact, because it could make it commonplace, mm-hmm. I think is my problem. It could be deadening. I suppose I'm looking at this from like a Sontag angle, mm-hmm. which we could talk about. I wish I wish actually that I had thought of that before, <laughs> before this, though. Luckily, I remember a lot. But, uh, you know, I know a lot of Vietnam for the American public was about, you know, for the civilian, was about TV and the experience of Mm -hmm. witnessing a war in real life. Mm -hmm. and Or sorry, in real time. And my understanding is that the visual, you know, footage of the jungle and the guerrilla warfare, footage of the body bags coming off the planes, that this, from what I've heard from people who've lived through it, partly contributed to the diminishing of the American appetite for that war, if there ever was much of one to begin with, which, you know, there really wasn't. So it seems to me that the idea of the visual has always been an important part of the Vietnam War, more so than any other war before or since, because this was like kind of the intrusion of the camera into the war zone in real time in a way that we hadn't seen before, even in Korea. Mm -hmm. So I guess it made me wonder if this war is so bad, which the film seems designed to show and which even the American civilian knows, and if its effects are so horrendous on the mind and spirit of humanity. I mean, this is a war famous for inducing PTSD in the people who've lived through it. Mm -hmm. If the purpose is to make another Vietnam, then my question as I'm watching it is just why on one level. I think that the film is aware of this and it provides a kind of visual rebuke throughout the film. There are instances, I think, of like, uh, you know, Coppola as himself directing a Vietnam documentary. The visuals and the futility of the visuals of the USO Playboy show. Mm -hmm. The photojournalist character. I mean, we could talk about all of these elements because I think they're saying something important about film. But I guess what I'm trying to say is just that I felt a deadening Mm -hmm. at the end of this movie. I realized as I was watching it, I had never seen any part of like the last 20 minutes of the movie except for the shot of Brando lying on the ground saying the horror, the horror. Mm -hmm. I had seen that clip, but I had not seen the water buffalo scene. And as soon as I saw that damn water buffalo, I almost said out loud, like, am I to be spared nothing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so you could get away with so much true horror in a, in a novel, in a story compared to a film. And I, I feel as though it's nowhere near as morally compromised because no matter how vivid and sick and shocking the thing that you're describing on paper, it's not a direct image. And so on some level, it's circumscribed by the limits of what's already within our own imaginations. Therefore, it can't possibly be as intrusive or scarring 
or ultimately deadening as images can be. And Sontag writes about this in terms of the pictures of the concentration camps that, and, and in fact, the concentration camps were what I thought of when Kurtz tells that story of the pile of little arms. Right. And it's there in Card of Darkness as, as well. The things which sound, you know, are very evocative of that. And frankly, I think the power and the emotional weight of that story is that it's told to us by Kurtz. We don't see that pile of little arms. I think if we did, I bet it would be so underwhelming that we would be shocked at ourselves. I don't know. I'm throwing a lot of stuff at the wall here, I know. And I brought up the possibility that there's a darker side to the poetic that led to a discussion about the possible immorality of certain artistic representations, which is certainly in line with right the traditional platonic objection to the poetic. Mm-hmm. And I think we have at least three threads to the potential moral compromise in art. And these may all be related and there may be some overlap, but you're emphasizing the possible deadening quality that the, you know, we may become inured to this sort of stuff or it may be normalized in a, in a sense. I remember seeing this movie as a kid and the thing that the one thing that stuck with me and I found so disturbing was the, you know, after the woman throws the grenade into the helicopter Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the helicopter explodes and then Kilgore has a very casual reaction to that. He's not worried about his men who've just been <laughs> killed or the little girl that he's just put into the helicopter, right? The baby. Mm-hmm. We see all these different conflicting things in Kilgore, but this tender moment of, of trying to save the baby. And then it's like he's completely indifferent to the fact that the helicopter's just exploded and casually says, you know, be savages or something. And then has his, you know crew mow down the um, three Vietnamese people who are running away, including the girl who put the hand grenade into the helicopter. And when I was younger, I don't think I made the connection. I didn't realize that she was the one who had put the grenade in. And I thought this was just like for sport, Mm. killing civilians. Mm. And this did happen. People killed for sport. My my uncle was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and um, people in helicopters would shoot civilians for sport. This is the kind of thing that, that starts to happen in war. So I found that disturbing and heartbreaking and i couldn't grasp the film's critique of that right i couldn't feel that as an objection or a critique i i maybe by the time i got to the sampan scene you know very obviously where they are trying to create a kind of my lie massacre mm-hmm. situation i maybe grasp that more now watching it as a, as i'm older i'm more inured to that and it's difficult it, <laughs> Very difficult to watch, but yes, there's a certain layer or boundary that you learn to erect between you and the the representation. It's it's different. Mm. So that's one possibility. There's inurement, and then the second one is the one that I was pointing to, which is you know, and I was relating it to Slaughterhouse Five, which is the potential for glorification, and and for the potential for glorification being built into the representation of horror, being built into critique, because it depends on your particular moral comportment. If you're watching people who are justifying killing other people by calling them savages, you can accept the critique of that, or you know, maybe you go along with it to to a certain extent, or maybe it's both. Right. Or if you're looking at a manly man like Kilgore, he's formidable. He's got that, you know, as I said, ancient Greek warrior quality. What's in tension there is the the sort of sociopathy and the unethical component of what's going on. And then excellence, 
excellence in the mm. sense of just, you know, someone who's tall and has an erect posture and is barking orders and is fearless, right? Absolutely fearless and operates with total confidence and inspires loyalty in his troops. So you cannot help but be attracted to that. And this is part of the goal of the filmmaker or the artist. And it leads us into the third thread, which is, you know, you have to create something that's entertaining and that's alluring to people. And that's there are, there are charms associated with the arts. Mm. So the third possibility, and this is one that I think Plato is worried about, is just that the impulse to entertain dominates over everything else so that you are sort of impelled to identify whether you like it or not. So even, you know, when you're watching tragic figures on stage for Plato, you don't learn the lesson, you know, if there's some lesson in tragedy, you, you just sort of, you, you identify with the tragic figure and you want to imitate them and your soul kind of gets comported to that, to having those same types of emotions, to being irrationally passionate and prone to strong emotions. Aristotle's Poetics is a critique of that. It's the whole idea of catharsis tries to take that idea and say, actually, we can identify with those feelings without simply wanting to imitate them. They can affect us in, in more complicated ways. So that's, that's, I think, we've gotten at that kind of ongoing debate about the effects of, of artistic representation. And I think it is important, the film, you know, as you pointed out, you can treat the film as a meditation on the, uh, on the role of the artist. Yeah. You had mentioned the sort of highlighting of the heroism of Kurtz and the fact that he joined the special forces at 38. Yeah. And and Willard relates that, you know, the way the movie begins is someone, you know, you also mentioned PTSD, someone who clearly has PTSD. And part of it is he can't function in the home environment in this film. There's a lot about home and whether you can return home and, and Kilgore's attempt to make the theater like home and all this stuff. So, so Willard can't be at home without being lost and you know it begins with his punching the mirror and by the way that's all real that was all just they got martin sheen really drunk and let him i did know that yeah, part. Okay. <laughs> and um, the heart attack yeah. and the fact that Lawrence fishburne was only 14 right i, right, I know right. a couple things <laughs> right. but so yeah so he it begins with this whole idea that he needs to get back to the jungle he needs somehow to get back to violence there's that addiction to that and this of course this looms over right the question we've just been talking about whether we could be traumatized or lured into that position as well and so in this sense he identifies with kurtz right there's a doubling mm -hmm. between in the same way that there is in the novel there's a doubling just as there's a doubling between kurtz and marlowe there's a doubling between kurtz and and willard willard is fascinated with kurtz as a kind of alter ego so it starts with as in the novel starts with his kind of nobler ideals perhaps or maybe that's a component but it kind of ends with the fact that he's stuck in the jungle and can't and and really that's why he is willing to you know he has the stellar career that he gives up and, and knocks himself down to special forces where he can only rise to the level of colonel you know he could have been in general mm. just because he needs to get back to war and uh back to the jungle yeah i like too the fact that and partially this is because of a time constraint i'm sure but I like the fact that we get almost a complete picture of Kurtz pretty much right away, <laughs> right? In the yeah. novel, it's more of like the slow drip of information. Right. right. And we get it in the form of those three. Oh, first of all, I just want to say that opening hotel scene, that is like primo Martin Sheen. He is so attractive. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Even though he's having the middle of, of his like psychotic episode, like with the stubble. And Played the it would not feel good about this response. But. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've been seduced by. <laughs> but I know, I know. But just in that first, the first part, and then when we see Harrison Ford, and I'm like, oh, Harrison Ford. Anyway, um, some very attractive men in the very beginning of this. That's movie. how they get you. I know. Mm-hmm. It real just reeled me in, and then I was like, for me, it's Kilgore that does it for me. But yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I found him to be nasty. I mean, I love Robert Duvall, but oh, there's something we have different tastes in men. Sick about him. <laughs> And then when he goes to meet the generals and they tell him about Kurtz and his sort of history, there's that audio transmission. So you actually get his voice right up front. And actually, I was watching this with Greg and Greg mentioned that he felt as though there was something similar in the timbre of Martin Sheen's voice in the voiceover and Mm. Kurtz's voice in the audio transmission, which is true. They both have, you know, Brando and Martin Sheen both have that kind of high pitched sound mm-hmm. to their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, you know, there's the obvious like visual parallel when they both are covered in the mm-hmm. camouflage slash mud at the end, but even the audio, the auditory parallel. But anyway, so we get this, we get the audio transmission where he says that whole thing about a snail crawling on the edge of a straight razor and surviving. <laughs> and it's a little bit, that's gotta be a Brando improvisation. Yeah. But then we get that general's really bizarre, speech which kind of took me out of it because it was a little bit too he says this whole thing about you know things get confused out there it's very on the nose yeah exactly yeah the struggle between good and evil the, the what lincoln called the better better angels of our nature sometimes the dark side overcomes what lincoln called the better angels of our nature you know that's something that is frequently quoted in college by professors you know when i was taking whatever american history classes or whatever and it just seemed to me to be so out of place I don't know what you thought of that, that little speech he gives and whether you bought it. Yeah, we get a lot up front, you know, the voice that in, the, in the novel, it's a point of suspense, right? Because mm. Marlowe is simply imagining. It's a little weird because it's, it's kind of a, you know, Marlowe telling the story has already heard the voice. And so uh, he imbues the voice with this special quality that we don't know. And, and, and so when he's retelling the story, he's retelling it as himself sort of being lured by the voice and wanting to hear it. It's a very weird thing because how could he know anything about the voice? So Mm. here we're just giving it right up front, which I don't think is a bad idea, actually, because I don't think as a point of suspense, that doesn't really work for me in the novel. Yeah, it got tiresome in the novel. I think we both agree. Yeah, Yeah. There's there's more suspense in hearing a creepy guy talking about a snail slithering along a razor and saying, oh, I want to meet this guy. (laughs) I think that might be Brando. What? (laughs) And then the um, they get to the unsound methods straight out mm-hmm. of the novel and and then terminate with extreme prejudice, which actually comes from a, uh, a New York Times article about the mm. assassination of um, two South Vietnamese special agents. But yeah, that immediately injected itself into the popular culture after that. But yeah, it is a weird, the scene is not, um, it doesn't not work for me because there's a strangeness to it all. Mm. So the fact that Corman does this very on the nose speech about Kurtz, you know, it wasn't, it, I don't think it was as jarring to me. It shoves the theme, some thematic stuff right in your face. It's true. I think the opening of the film is very enchanting, right? And very visual. Then, mm. then we get 12, 13 minutes of this stuff, which is a lot, I think, for an audience to tolerate. You know, because in a way it's the least aesthetically pleasing part of the film. And there's a lot of that exposition and... um, That's true, yeah. You know, just shove it all in our face. (laughs) It really made me think of No Country for Old Men Mm. for some reason. That Tommy Lee Jones character is like long 
meditations on what's happening, but also staying completely out of the action of the film. <laughs> mm. You know, and I guess often that's that that's a tension in war films, like in um, Saving Private Ryan too. Right, the guys who like decide that they have to go in, stay very clean in their white offices, mm-hmm. <laughs> and meanwhile everybody on the ground is like covered in dirt. Yeah, that's a good you know. point. Yeah. You know, I even think that that element of his quoting Lincoln is an important part of the demonstration of the distance, the mental and physical distance as they're sitting in clean Saigon. It would have been even more heightened if they were in Washington. But, um, you know, the ability to have philosophical conversations about what's happened and even to order these types of executions versus actually having to carry them out works for me. Yeah. We get introduced to this idea of sound, unsound methods, and that becomes an important kind of kernel for Willard's ruminations throughout the film. Because when we get to Kilgore, Kilgore is kind of a pre-Kurtz in a way, uh, or he's mm-hmm. kind of a foil or point of comparison for Kurtz. And Willard directly, you know, this is... A, yeah, he says if Kilgore acts like this, what, what must they have against Kurtz? Right, right. Yeah. There's, you know, there's plenty of madness and murder to go around for everyone. And charging him Kurtz with murder is like ticketing people at the Indy 500 and, mm. and all that stuff. It's an interesting question, I think, in the novel and the film. What makes Kurtz's methods unsound? How are they different from the other methods that we see in the movie? What are the other methods, right? It's not just that Kurtz's methods involve atrocities, because, you know, the film's critique of the atrocities of the of the war machine. So we ultimately, we need something else to explain what that means. I'm not sure that, I think, you know, a lot of people think Coppola doesn't really have any have a firm sense of, you know, what he's, he's just throwing a lot of things at the wall. And, but I think there are some, um, actually some very interesting things ultimately to say about this idea of unsound methods and the difference between Kurtz and Kilgore and Kurtz's form of violence and other forms of violence that we see in the film. Well, one of the ideas is presented actually by the general. It, it now occurs to me when he talks about the natives and the temptation they present to be a God to them. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be Kurtz's main issue is that he's a god. So I, I don't know, maybe it's a matter of degrees. Like, you know, Kilgore is just a, you know, a heroic warrior who has the support of the gods and Kurtz himself has gone a step too far and made himself a god. Th- that seems to me to be part of it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. It, it's just a very bizarre thing for the general to say the temptation to be a god. He implies that that's a common temptation. And that Kurtz has crossed the line by actually fully giving in to that temptation. So that seems to me to be set up as the problem, the, the big problem. Yeah, this seems to be a kind of absolute power corrupts absolutely type of argument, which I think is one of several options just in the way, you know, in the book we have several options for explaining Kurtz. But uh, No, I, I think it also shows a way in which Kurtz has, he's gone too far by penetrating something mm-hmm. in in the consciousness of the people. So... You can have Kilgore murdering civilians willy-nilly. I mean, not willy-nilly. I mean, you know, you know what I mean with that scene with a grenade. You can have that, but he does it aerially. So there's an, a godlike element to that. But there's also a kind of like um, he's fulfilling his mission, or whatever that may be, mm-hmm. as an American soldier, right? Yep. Kurtz has infiltrated among the people and, and infected their minds in a way. You know, he's become part of the culture in a way that it goes too far. Well, look, this is, you know, you can recite poetry. You're, you're, there's nothing <laughs> that you can't do. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is part of it. I think it helps just to look at a little bit of what Kurtz... Kurtz has his own justification for his methods, right? I like it when these things are kind of just done explicitly <laughs> mm-hmm. in films and books. You know, so 
So Kurt says, you know, he tells the story of the men who cut off the arms of the vaccinated villagers. And then he says, you know, at first I wept like some grandmother. But then he says, you know, he had something like a diamond bullet through the forehead. And then he saw the genius of that, the will to do that. Perfect, genuine, complete, crystalline, pure. And then I realized they were stronger than we because they could stand that these were not monsters. These were men trained cadres. These men who fought with their hearts, who had families, who had children, who were filled with love, but they had the strength, the strength to do that. If I had 10 divisions of those men, our troubles here would be over very quickly. You have to have men who are moral and at the same time who are able to utilize their primordial instincts to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgment, without judgment, because it's judgment that defeats us. Just to step back to your point about Kurtz kind of being able to become a god to the villagers in the in the book, that's a that's associated with his artistic nature, right? He can give these speeches, these amazing speeches. Mm-hmm. They do a little bit of that with the Hopper photojournalist character in the film, where you know he's like, "Man, you don't you don't talk to Kurtz. You listen to him. This guy recites poetry out loud." <laughs> Only Hopper could pull this off, I think. But <laughs> he's awesome in this. Yeah, he's just legitimately insane enough to make all of that like convincing and, and funny. I was just thinking if they did a remake, Owen Wilson would be the only person who could play that character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not that they should ever remake this. Anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah. So Kurtz, it, it's not actually a bad argument. You know, he's, he's arguing for operating like an, like an animal would operate and engaging in killing that isn't moralized, right? It isn't, you don't call people savages or demonize them and you don't say hey we're here on a humanitarian mission and therefore there's going to be collateral damage and this is necessary the difference between kurtz's clear-eyed sociopathic ruthlessness so just call it ruthlessness you know kurtz is advocating ruthlessness and that is what seems insane that is what seems like an unsound method not because it might not achieve results but because it it doesn't you know if you look at the other forms of violence in the film you get like the panic killing in the sampan scene you know the family on the on the riverboat or the kind of just psychotic there's no commanding officer stuff going on the, the dolong bridge which is a pointless bridge anyway and it's just to fulfill some bureaucratic imperative to say that a road is open you know so the bridge gets blown up every every night and then rebuilt the next day mm. or the kinds of killing that's going on with kilgore kilgore is a very interesting case right because he has an objective which is and and this is something else willard comments on right the guys just want to go home, but they can't because the home home doesn't exist anymore. And I think part of that is this idea of there's the concept of social transformation, right? Youth culture is transforming the United States and even the reaction to the Vietnam War, ironically, is transforming the United States in, the, in a way that means that the soldiers can't ever really go home. They can't go to home, home to what they knew, to a society that's more anchored to tradition. So this is kind of a things fall apart element going on here. Mm-hmm. And then they can't go home because trauma will alter them in a way that they are kind of become creatures built to operate in the warlike environment. So they can't go home in that sense. But Kilgore, he sees, he's, he's trying to treat the violence as a means to homemaking, so to speak. So Kilgore, like they have a beach barbecue that night. And, and then mm-hmm. Willard makes a comment. The more he tried to make it like home, the more, you know, everyone just missed home. And 
he can subjugate the objective. First of all, like the, the cavalry just seems to be running wild, looking for shit, something like that, as Willard puts it, and not having much of any real objective, but just kind of wander around looking for things to, to kill. And then they're, they're tasked with helping him get up river. So the motivating factor for Kilgore is I'm going to take Charlie point just, just so I can get some surfing in. So everything is subjugated to these things that you associate with being an American who has lots of time on their hands for leisure activities, right? Recreating Mm -hmm. the American lifestyle in the theater of war and even making war serve that that purpose so there's a lot of different types of violence i i think here none of them though i think in any of these things people would say are these the insane ones or is kurtz the you know are these the forms of violence that are insane or is it kurtz's form i mean there's the just the insanity and pointlessness of being in vietnam in the first place and the way the military bureaucracy operates though but kurtz asks us to give up our hypocrisy and give up our alibis give up our the moralization of violence give up the justification of it and just see it for what it is. And that's what I think they see as the unsound method and the insanity. Not because it might not produce results, but because it's psychologically too costly. Mm. So once they leave Kilgore and then we get the episode on the on the boat, it seems to me like there's a sort of a transposing. I mean, the boat becomes a kind of a safe haven and kind of a home mm. in a way. There's this idea uh, that Willard returns to over and over again, which is don't get off the boat. Mm-hmm, um, exactly, yeah. We have the unless you want to unless you go all the way right it's right saying going native yeah the the lesson learned of never getting off the boat we we get with uh, finding a, a different kind of native which is a tiger right in the um, in the jungle chef the the saucier who like goes insane when the tiger jumps out at them and is like I don't want this I just wanted to cook man like mm-hmm. that's great <laughs> uh, which is really awesome but yeah the idea of creating the home on that boat so that you can. You know, the boat becomes a kind of a similar venue for homemaking as the helicopters do, even though they do obviously make the beach into a party and there's a there's a a homemaking that goes on there. What strikes me about the napalm and the aerial shootings and everything is the sense of distance between the vessels in which these people are entombed in certain instances, especially in the case where the helicopter blows up and the surrounding landscape where there's a real there's a physical and a kind of a mental distance Mm -hmm. and the same thing with the boat so the idea of getting off the boat i think is also related to the idea of kurtz's having gone native and having penetrated into the society that seems to be the wrong the wrong thing to actually see these people as being like more human in a way more and less human at the same time is what kurtz does wrong whereas if you just keep your distance and see them as targets and stay with your buddies and try to create as ho- a home as much as possible, whether that be on the boat or in the helicopter with these aerial raids or with your little troop that you can go surfing with, then that's okay, which is a strange and necessary idea. Right. Because from the standpoint of home, there's the, the capacity for rationalization is, is greater, right? So if you can kill, like the, the motto on Kilgore's helicopter is death from above, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Delivering death from above can be noble and glorious, and it's not up close and personal. Willard's reflections start with, you know, how many people have I killed? The six that I know about. So he's done six up close and personal. Yeah. And then there's others, who knows? Because, you know, if you're part of a battle, who knows? So right. we immediately get that distinction between those two 
types of killing and to embrace Kurtz's point of view is to embrace, you know, like amputating arms or doing very, very cruel, cutting off heads, right. you know, all the heads, you know, very up close and personal types of killing where you don't get to create these alibis for yourself. You have to face the full consequences to yourself of the behavior that you've you've engaged in. Not not that there's not a lot of up close and personal killing in Vietnam, and that's part of what's so traumatic, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, this is what war trauma is all about. And more than anything, memories of the kinds of violence that they've engaged in, um, especially that up close and personal violence. But yeah, that's a very good point that you're making. I think from the standpoint of a kind of uh, artificial home bubble, it's easier to do this kind of distance killing. And that's the sound method, I think, ultimately. That's what they, they, you know, they don't think this consciously, but I think this is what really people think of as the, the sound the approach. It's not crazy because you can always say, no, I'm not a monster. It's just collateral damage. It's just, you know. Yeah, it's just a drone. <laughs> if you do it deliberately and face-to-face, -face, then you can't use that excuse anymore. Yeah, again, I return to the idea of, of a camera, you know, mm. the camera is like a mediating factor between you and the, the subject that you're, you know, you're Very not looking good. directly at it. You're looking through a viewfinder. <laughs> Just realized that the Sontag essay that I'm thinking of is called In Plato's Cave. Mm. Um, yeah. But she talks about that a camera is like fundamentally anti-interventionist, right? Because you can't shoot a picture of somebody and like help them at the same time and do or do anything right. with them. Well, by the way, let me just interject that there's that great scene on the beach, right? Where Coppola is playing the TV guy and saying, just run past the camera. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, this is for TV. Just don't look at the camera. And Willard pauses for a long time looking straight at him. Right. Don't look at the camera. Keep going like you're fighting. Uh, well, that, that was the most important moment of the whole movie for me. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking, too, to return to this idea of the home thing is that you even have, you know, inter-home, <laughs> you know, Hatfields and McCoy's kind of uh, warfare, mm. too, because you have the, the boats coming by, mm. lighting each other on fire. <laughs> right. And then they have to replace the freaking top of the thing with the branches. Yeah. The stupidity of that is really incredible. Different layers of obvious insanity, right? So who's insane, again, is right. the question. And the same thing with the, you know, the, the purple haze, the smoke bomb, mm. which attracts the attention of the local tribes and, and ultimately results in Mr. Clean getting murdered sweet baby with his mom's recording yeah, being played which i'm is... sorry i felt very guilty watching the whole thing knowing that you were watching it <laughs> <laughs> why <laughs> i asked you to watch this oh no, oh and you knew that i wouldn't be able to be, handle that not be easy for you, but. yeah i'm cr i'm like i'm literally crying right now just saying that um <laughs> i am I, my eyes are watering but that smoke screen just re really fitting to me that use of smoke throughout like especially yeah. around brando's compound and of course it's like seems to me to be rhyming with the fog, which is in the novel and in the book. Yep. Whatever we could say about that as a visual pun on the fog of war or the insularity of the fog that it traps the people on the boat within themselves or with each other rather and away from what's going on around them. But then that the purple haze, which is a literal smoke screen, actually draws attention to them. That's kind of a strange du doubling. And, and which connects us to the drug culture as well, right? Of course, of course, yeah. yeah. But that idea that by they're not covering themselves up, it's like they're standing out instead by infiltrating to a certain point. Yeah, it's a form of escapism that attracts attention. So, you know, maybe we can, can connect escapism to home, what we've called homemaking, mm. treat them as the same sort of thing, right? It's They're trying to have fun on the boat. And forget about right. where they are. And the fog is um, something insulating and something entrancing. It's a purple haze, you know, reminiscent of being high, you know, in a fog. Insulating. That's a word I was trying to get to. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you 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 try to escape from reality. You do it at home. You, you but it's even more poignant and and uh, urgent to do that in a in an environment that's traumatizing. And yet it backfires. You know, it stands in contrast to Kurtz's urge to be clear minded to do this mm. with total clarity. Part of what they, they they need home, they need insulation because that again is the alibi for violence that makes it tolerable. This is what makes it a sound method. This is why I love the irony that I love is that it's unsound. You know, it gets clean guilt, but it's psychologically sound. That insulation, unsound in reality, it sounds psychologically. So, which do we prefer? It's actually not a it's not a clear answer to right. that question. But well, it's the same idea of the you know the dehumanization of like especially Asians in these times of war, like mm. in World War II with the Japanese and the tactics that people use to dehumanize the enemy as a means of psychological distancing is both sound and unsound, right? Like you have to dehumanize them exactly. if, if you're going to expect people to kill in that way, but it's also disgusting and, <laughs> and not sound right. by its very nature. It sounds like we're almost totally upriver here and we're going to get to the Brando compound, but which I'm, probably looks a lot like what I imagine his house in Polynesia looked like. But um, but before we get there, I just wanted to turn around for a second and backtrack to the Playboy show. I do want to talk about that. Yeah. So this is, I, I just want to make a preliminary comment. This is part of that Odyssey-like effect. Ah, yeah, sure. And the, I mean, Melius thought of this as the siren scene. And mm. it's not perfect. It's very, very loosely associative, what he's doing. But what you do see is you see these series of episodes in which certain appetites are, you know, and, they, and these are related with home as well, or what Freud might call inst- ego instincts, then self-preservation or the desire to take care of oneself. But, you know, it's food, right? With the mangoes, the chef just wants to cook. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's the sexual desire involved in this moment. So there are other, there are other moments like that as well. But yeah, so the, the Playboy bunny scene. Yeah, it reminded me of... You know, I just recently saw Cool Hand Luke, you know, which is remarkably similar to this in certain ways. But, you know, the car wash scene that after George Kennedy's character is recounting the scene to the men over and over again in their bunks and describing it to them in this kind of titillating way. And Luke, Paul Newman's character, gets mad at him and is like, what are you trying to do? Like, what's what's the purpose of this? Mm. That's what I was thinking the whole time during this whole thing. It's like if if pornography, I guess, is, you know, if the purpose is, is to titillate and it has some sort of utilitarian and even like sort of mechanistic function, then what happens when you just when even the mechanistic function of of this kind of it's not a pornographic show, but you know what I mean? This this purposely titillating show is also thwarted. Like, why bother? Like, why not get Bob Hope and t- to tell a few jokes? <laughs> <laughs> why does it have to be a Playboy show? just to rile these people up to the point where they're trying to jump on the helicopter, you know? Yeah. Well, it's another failure of the transplantation of home, right? Of, you know, it's a place without women. And um, right. of course it's, it's, yeah. What's the point in redux? They, they run into the bunnies later and there's like a makeout scene. I'm glad that was cut out. Oh yeah. Um, it doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Cause this is supposed to be ultimately highlight the, the pointlessness of this. It's not something they can actually have, and it's just in inducing of frustration. Well, it's another element of this idea of the limits of the visual, the difficulty of film as a medium to express all this stuff. This scene and the the scene of, of Coppola directing the faux documentary really stood out to me because like pornography or, and, and with the, the naked pinups too, whatever they're trying to express with that reference to something pornographic. Like for Coppola to say that this film isn't about Vietnam, it is Vietnam. Like, you know, pornography isn't about sex, it is sex, right? So in a way, like what Coppola is doing with Apocalypse Now, I, I, it just occurred to me is like kind of pornographic in a 
a way. And again, it just made me think that is the movie itself artistic, of course, yes, but it did make me think about a war film and the parallels between a war film and pornography, especially one which claims to reproduce the horrors. So is this artistic? Is it not pornographic? I think that pornography and artistry are two very different things. Yep. But, but is there an element of the pornographic in this? I, I think so, because if part of that artistry of Coppola's, if the purpose of that is to be kind of pornographic about the horrors of war, to show how it's devastating, to show the deleterious effects of seeing something terrible, which is used as a trope again and again, like, what did Kurt see that made him this way, Willard asked, that something terrible, seeing something terrible can warp you and deaden you. And to show this via a medium that warps you and deadens you <laughs> as a viewer, yeah. uh, to me, is more than just irony. We're back again to the danger of the poetic or the mimetic. Right. And to the something conflictual inherent in, in representation. And, and we focused on the, on the violence, but now we get to the, the sexual component of this. So the, mm -hmm. you know, the things we were focused on were inurement or glorification or titillation, entertainment via violence. But now we have to think about sexuality. And notably, there's a much, much higher tolerance for violence in films than there is for actual sex, right? So to be truly pornographic, sure. it would have to be very, very explicit. And it's always an interesting question of why we are so much more tolerant of very, very explicit violence. But we say, let's put the explicit sex in a different category and keep it out of the films. You know, the, the, I think the heyday of like anything explicit in films is probably in the 80s when there always had to be a topless scene. And now, you, right. now I don't think for the most part you even see that. Because what is the point, really? There is no point. I, th I think it was done because it could be done because it was, in a way, a statement of a sort. But it actually doesn't serve any function. And, and the reason it doesn't, it, I, I think it is very different from violence. Because in sexuality, representation and action, words and action are actually much closer to each other. Right? So people are involuntarily titillated or repulsed or both by explicit sexual scenes in a way that is very psychologically invasive. Mm -hmm. And you've made an argument that this to some extent is true of representations of violence as well. I think it's less true. And I think that's why violence is more tolerated. I agree. It's less true, I think, because our sexual activated sexual fantasies are actually arousing physiologically in ways that are much more powerful. A big part of the enjoyment of movies and other arts is vicarious enjoyment of violence. I think that's, you know, in a, in a curtsy in vain, I, I would say we should face that fact. <laughs> like people go to see an action movie, they want to enjoy violence. And the way they usually enjoy that is through the moralization of the violence. There are good guys and there are bad guys. So th this is mm -hmm. another reason I think we're more tolerant of violence in, in film because we, we have better defenses that we can deploy to contain the fantasy and the impulses. And we say, yeah, these are bad guys and they deserve to die. And therefore I'm not just getting off on violence. I'm, you know, I just want to see justice done, something like that. There's some filmmakers who like Quentin Tarantino, you can see the difference because he's obviously sadistic. He's just like, I want to get off on violence. I'm not going to put the moralizing stuff in my film. Right. <laughs> Right. And so it's disturbing when that doesn't happen. It's a good um, kind of uh, comparison. So, yeah, I think these are good questions that are, that are you know, again, intimately related to what's going on in the, the film itself, because we're talking about trauma. Mm -hmm. Anything that's like a explicit pornographic sexual representations are actually potentially traumatic because they can invade us more effectively and because we don't have as effective 
defenses, and this goes back to the alibis, right? The homemaking alibis mm. and rationalizations for war. Sex, it's much, much harder to do that. We're much more in that Kurtzian position of just having to face up to it. It sounds like you agree about the potential for sex to be more traumatic. I do. I do. And also because there's a flattening. Like killing something, violence already is a, is a flattening. It shuts down life, <laughs> literally. There is a reality that is within sex that can't possibly be portrayed on film. And so right. film flattens that and makes it into something that is a purely physical act and therefore kind of cheapens it. Whereas in many forms of violence, it is just purely a physical act. There isn't something that people might call holy, <laughs> right, about violence. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Whereas filming sex or seeing something like that through a camera, it makes it violent when it's not violent. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's supposed to be the opposite of violence, but the depiction of it, because you're just getting the image and you're not actually experiencing it and getting the, the things in sex that go beyond the actual physical act, I think it makes it repulsive, which violence is already repulsive, so who cares, <laughs> right? Yeah, that would be the, the, what corresponds to the defense, right, for violence, would be the containing factor for sex is some sense of intimacy, or you mentioned that you could, there could be a religious component or a holy component as well, or... Or just a spiritual... Yeah, spiritual Joining, component. yeah. Yeah, so, and so that provides a way to reinterpret or to give a symbolic component to sex that makes it more than mere rape or mere violence mm -hmm. and um, mere intrusion, and it draws on the human capacity for you know, language and mutual recognition and, and all those things. And so it's... It, and, and how do you do that in in a film, you know, even if it were a romantic comedy, right? <laughs> what are you going to, you know, in Notting Hill, which we watched recently, right? do you go from the tender mm -hmm. romantic scenes to suddenly you cut to an ex explicit sexual pornography? Those two, they don't work. There are deep, deep reasons why you can't ever do that because the representation of sex, you can moralize violence in a way that's completely successful. You know, the bad guys look like bad guys visually on the screen, mm -hmm. but you can't, there's something about intimacy that's, ineffable and so hard to represent that it can't sort of neutralize the extremely um, stimulating nature of the representation of sex. But you're reminding me with something when you mentioned something holy, if there can be something holy in violence, right, it is with sacrifice. And that's the thing that mm -hmm. Coppola tries to use. And of course, it's not there in the novel and it's hard to make sense of it. <laughs> Coppola was looking for an ending to the film, and this is one of the things that was really bothering him. In the original script, Kurtz and Willer joined forces to fight the Viet Cong for a while. <laughs> this is huge wow. final <laughs> battle, which would be idiotic, of course. And uh, Coppola, throughout the filming process, was just completely rewriting the, the script. And then he had a very uncooperative Marlon Brando in the end, who didn't want to read any of his lines and basically had to have him improvise for days and days and days just to cut together what little he got of that, which I think was effective. But, you know, I wonder how well the concept of sacrifice in the end, that's his way out with an ending, right? The identification of this kind of animal sacrifice on the part of the indigenous people, the natives in the film, with Willard killing Kurtz as a form of sacrifice. I, I thought a lot about this, but I think it's very hard to make sense of it. I mean, in a way, it's mm. 
why try to make sense of it? You know, Coppola is just, he's, you know, he's reaching. But yeah, I don't know what you thought right. about that, if you thought there were, was something there. I do. I also think it's beyond sense. Mm-hmm. The film doesn't really end for me. Mm-hmm. I don't find the ending very good. <laughs> in a way I, yes I, I watched i watched this with someone who's like yeah bad ending <laughs> you know at the beginning we get the superimposed images of the helicopters with the ceiling fan that works really well yeah. i think at the end we get three super well we get one image and two images superimposed so i, I really love it in the cambodian anger watt style complex i really love the stone that first shot of that large monumental sort of column that as you look at it, the two faces on either side seem to come into focus. Mm-hmm. So you could see the faces and the, the doubling, the, you don't want to then impose, um, you know, Western culture onto this. But you think of Janice. Mm-hmm. I, I thought of Janice. I, and I thought, of course, of uh, the, the twinning of Brando and Martin Sheen's faces. Mm-hmm. At the end, those last shots are the, the, what, the image of the boat and the riverbank superimposed with the image of that of the, one of those faces, one of those monumental faces, and then the image of Martin Sheen's face. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are we left with? Well, Martin Sheen, what, is the good guy who doesn't get taken in and he leaves, but there's some remnant of this still within him? Is that what we're supposed to get from this? I think a far more effective ending and a very interesting ending would be if when he came out after killing Kurtz and was on the steps and everyone bowed to him, the movie just ended because then we wouldn't know whether or not he takes the... You know, instead, he pulls Lance, (laughs) the surfer, who's totally bought into everything and is in some kind of trance that that Colby guy is in. (laughs) You know, he pulls him out and he gets to be the good guy who has made the sacrifice. If we had just been left with the image of them bowing to him on the stairs and didn't know what he did with that, then the the quote-unquote sacrifice could be read not as a sacrifice, but as an overthrow. And I think the ending would be far more ambiguous and the murder of Kurtz, or you call it whatever, you know, the killing of Kurtz would be very interesting. And I don't know if you agree with that, but that's where I would end the film. In my infinite wisdom, if I could play God like Kurtz, that's where I would end the film. And then the sacrifice would be the sacrifice to the new God or the overthrow of the old God, whatever the case may be. One of the questions here is the fate of Willard. I suppose he has to tell the tale at the end, but the whole thing could be that's yeah, that's a, him telling the story from the compound. True. While bald and squeezing water all over his head. <laughs> yeah. I wrote like the second time I watched it when I took just a few notes, I really didn't take much notes at all on this. I just wrote Brando's head phases of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons why they shot him in shadows was because he had gotten so fat. Kurtz was supposed to be gaunt. Oh, it works better with him as a fat man. He's living off the largesse of... <laughs> and what, well, what Coppola tried to do is he said, okay, we're just going to go the other way on this. And you're going to be this hedonist. He's like a, a woman mm-hmm. on either side and fat, you know, like Caesar and History of the World Part One or something, you know, just popping grapes. Yeah. And... Now there's a reference I can get behind. <laughs> yeah. And Brando would have none of that. He didn't want to be represented that way. So, so they, you know, Coppola did the best he could and came up with this compromise. All right, <laughs> you're too fat <laughs> to... <laughs> We're going to shoot half your head at the same time, you know, <laughs> uh, half your head at a time and, uh, you know, watch the gibbous wax and wane <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, or the gibbon wax. And yeah, wane. right. So I'm not so dissatisfied with Willard leaving. Uh, ultimately, there's no good answer to this because there's no real answer to Willard's dilemma, which is to be, you know, traumatized and need to be in the jungle. And yet 
it's not a great place to be. So having him become the new Kurtz, you know, is a problem in its own right. You know, when he walks down the steps and people are bowing or kneeling down to him and then he throws his weapon down and then people throw their weapons down. That's kind of the corniest part, right? And it's kind of lame insertion of an anti-war message or something. Makes no sense, but... Uh, or maybe it's not, you know, maybe, maybe it's just meant to show the, the desire to imitate, which has something to do with worship. And of course brings us back to the effect of art on the audience and the, the inducement of the audience to imitation, emotional and psychological imitation and the moral effects of that. For me, the big question is whether we can make sense of treating Kurtz's killing as a sacrifice can that really mean anything in the context of this movie? Can we connect it thematically back to anything else that has happened? For it to be a, a true sacrifice, the conditions have to be there, right? So so what are the conditions of, of sacrifice? A higher order, a higher ideal? I mean, I think it's clear that there is none. That's part of the problem of this war. And then we have to think about Christian sacrifice versus ancient Greek or primitive sacrifice mm. and... What was it for the Greeks? It's a way of, um, you know, you give some to the gods, right? It's a way of worshiping and honoring the gods. And I think it reflects an anxiety about what it means to kill. Because it's clear that when you sustain yourself by killing animals, you're much more, and you you do it for yourself, you're much more directly involved in it. There's a stronger identification with the prey as another conscious being. This is where our human self-consciousness gets us in trouble and where we have to kind of find a way out. Right. If you're a Kurtzian lion, you kill without any of that. You kill with complete coldness and empathy is not a factor in the mind. Consciousness of the other consciousness is not even a, a potential factor. But once that's been introduced, then we need, again, we need alibis and rationalizations and a way to make the killing more than just killing. But it, this actually runs in the opposite direction of the typical moralized alibi, the killing bad guys or the, we're killing savages or whatever. This goes in the other direction and says we are killing something sacred and we are in a way honoring. It's not just honoring the gods. There's, there's a connection between the god and the beast, I think. And we, we are honoring the thing that we are killing. And uh, one of the anxieties there is about depriving ourselves of the sources of life itself. It's the anxiety that life doesn't return, right? You know, winter, fall and winter, everything goes away. Does it come back? Is there a spring? And in part, you worship and sacrifice to the god in order to ensure that there's another spring. So to kill the animals, to evoke the anxiety that that's it, there's no more animals, there's no more life. And to turn that into a ritualized way of honoring the the god is to appease God or nature into preserving life, you know, in, in a more general sense, even in the context of specific killing. So those are my speculations, something like that. So, mm-hmm. so I, I still don't know exactly how to connect that to, um, there's something there about another way of killing, right? The, the, of the various ways of killing in the film, panic and moralization are just simply mindless or cold, and various other ways. This is a new way of conceiving of killing. And it, and it corresponds, by the way, to what we mentioned with intimacy and sex. It's it's a attempted containment to supply to violence what we get with sex when it's connected to some kind of intimacy. So maybe it's more intimate violence. Mm. Maybe the, the there's something to be said for the return to the primitive in this sense, to a position in which um, violence can actually... Uh, mean something, especially when it's necessary, right? If you have to kill animals to survive. Right. 
what Willard says about Kurtz is he doesn't want to go out as just like a washed up soldier. He wants to go out like a real soldier. And so Kurtz, you know, basically arranges for Willard to kill him. That's why the boat, you know, when, when Dennis Hopper character says it's, it's all approved, you know, pull in, pull in. Kurtz is setting this all in motion. He's kind of his little, he's a Prospero in a way on his, his island. And he's, he controls, you know, from that point forward, he has a great deal of control over the way the narrative unfolds. What he's saying as he's about to be sacrificed to is pretty interesting or the the document on his desk which is called i wrote down the title the role of democratic force in the underdeveloped world okay i was i tried so hard to figure out what that title was and i couldn't and then he writes on it drop the bomb exterminate them all Mm -hmm. so in the novel it's what it's um exterminate the brutes exterminate the brutes and then the title of the report is something about civilizing the savages or something yeah so to what extent is kurtz's vision a sacrificial vision i don't know well in the novel you know it's it kurtz's high-minded ideals have been compromised in some way and like we go in two directions he's been right his impulses have gotten the better of him or he's kind of the civilization has carried itself out to its logical extreme in a way in him so those are the two ways i think you can go but in this case again it's a little harder to make sense of because what we get is that kurtz joined the special forces because he just needed to get back to the jungle we don't get as much about him having any high-minded ideals and so there's not as much of a setup that would make sense of that in this we've never heard before about Kurtz being interested in spreading democracy, so to speak, right? Right. Um, Even though that's part of the official justification for the war. Great. Yeah, well, I think that's a good place to end. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partially Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails, and sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. (laughs) 